When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover lactation. Breast milk is thought to be the best form of nutrition for neonates and infants. The properties of human milk facilitate the transition of life from in utero to ex utero. This dynamic fluid provides a diverse array of bioactive substances to the developing infant during critical periods of brain, immune, and gut development. The American College of OBGYN strongly encourages women to breastfeed and supports each woman's right to breastfeed. The college recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life, with continued breastfeeding as complementary foods are introduced through the infant's first year of life as long as mutually desired by the woman and her infant. General clinical principles of breastfeeding can be applied here. Contraindications to breastfeeding are few and relatively limited. Contraindications to breastfeeding include having an infant with galactosemia, women who are infected with human immunodeficiency virus or human T-cell lymphotrophic virus type 1 or type 2, women who have active, untreated tuberculosis or who have varicella or active herpes simplex lesions on the nipple. Women with hepatitis C virus and hepatitis B virus can successfully breastfeed as long as the nipples are not bleeding or severely cracked. Women who are currently using illicit drugs is a relative contraindication to breastfeeding. However, certain medications used for treatment of these conditions may not be an absolute contraindication. For example, women on stable doses of methadone should be encouraged to breastfeed. Now, there's insufficient data to evaluate the effects of marijuana use on infants during lactation and breastfeeding, and in the absence of such data, marijuana use is discouraged during lactation. All right, next, let's cover mammogenesis before we get into lactogenesis. The breast begins to develop in utero, undergoing the first of many developmental changes necessary for proper breastfeeding to occur. A bulb-shaped mammillary bud can be discerned in the fetus as early as 18 to 19 weeks gestation. Now, inside this bud, a rudimentary mammary ductal system is formed, which is present at birth. After birth, growth of the gland parallels that of the child until puberty. At puberty, released estrogen stimulates breast tissue to enlarge through growth of mammary ducts into the pre-existing mammillary fat pad. Progesterone, secreted in the second half of the menstrual cycle, causes limited lobular alveolar development. The effects of estrogen and less so progesterone facilitate the formation of the characteristic structure of the adult breast, which is the terminal duct lobular unit. However, full alveolar development and maturation of epithelium requires the hormones of pregnancy. Now remember that in terms of pubertal changes, telarchy or early breast development is usually the first milestone. 
In lactogenesis, the mammillary gland develops the capacity to secrete milk. Lactogenesis includes all processes necessary to transform the mammillary gland from its undifferentiated state in early pregnancy to its fully differentiated state sometime after pregnancy. This fully differentiated state allows for full lactation. There are two stages of lactogenesis. Stage 1 occurs by mid-pregnancy. In this stage, the mammillary gland becomes competent to secrete milk. Lactose, total protein, and immunoglobulin concentrations increase within the secreted glandular fluid, whereas sodium and chloride concentrations decrease. The gland is now sufficiently differentiated to secrete milk, as evidenced by the fact that women often describe a couple of drops of colostrum on their nipples in the second or third trimester before birth. However, high circulating levels of progesterone and estrogen hold the secretion of milk in check. Stage 2 of lactogenesis occurs around the time of delivery. It's defined as the onset of copious milk secretion. In stage 2, blood flow, oxygen, and glucose uptake increase, and citrate concentration increases sharply. Increased milk citrate is considered a reliable marker for the second stage of lactogenesis. Now, progesterone here plays a key role. Removal of the placenta, which remember is the key source of progesterone during pregnancy, is necessary for the initiation of milk secretion. In stage 2, the tight junctions in the alveolar cells close. Copious milk secretion begins usually about a week after birth, after colostrum has first set in. Breasts now become full and warm, typically considered breast engorgement, and the endocrine control switches to autocrine control, which is a supply-demand phenomenon. There are two essential hormones necessary for the process of lactation, prolactin and oxytocin. During the second stage of lactogenesis, the breast becomes capable of milk production. For the ongoing synthesis and secretion of human milk, the mammary gland must receive hormonal signals. These signals, which are in direct response to stimulation of the nipple and the areola, are then relayed to the central nervous system. Although prolactin and oxytocin act independently on different cellular receptors, their combined actions are essential for successful lactation. The secretion of prolactin appears to be both positively and negatively regulated. However, its main locus of control comes from the hypothalamic inhibitory factors, the most important of which is dopamine, acting through the D2 subclass of dopamine receptors present in lactotropes. Once again, dopamine keeps prolactin levels in check. Prolactin stimulates mammillary glandular ductal growth and epithelial cell proliferation and induces milk protein synthesis. Oxytocin now is responsible for the milk ejection or the letdown reflex. When the neonate is placed on the breast and begins suckling, oxytocin is released. The suckling infant stimulates the touch receptors that are densely located around the nipple and the areola. The tactile sensations create impulses, in turn, which activate the dorsal root ganglia via the intercostal nerves 4, 5, and 6. These impulses ascend the spinal cord, creating an afferent neuronal pathway to both the paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus, where oxytocin is synthesized and secreted by the pituitary. Remember that oxytocin is synthesized and secreted by the paraventricular nuclei. The stimulation of the nuclei causes the release of oxytocin down the pituitary stalk and into the posterior pituitary gland where oxytocin is stored. 
the infant suckling creates afferent impulses that stimulate the posterior pituitary gland. This releases oxytocin in a pulsatile fashion to adjacent capillaries, traveling to the mammary myoepithelial cell receptor that, in turn, stimulate the cells to contract. Oxytocin causes the contraction of the myoepithelial cells that line the ducts of the breast. These smooth muscle-like cells, when stimulated, expel milk from alveoli into ducts and subareolar sinuses that empty through a nipple pore. The regulation of milk synthesis is quite efficient. Milk synthesis remains remarkably consistent at about 800 mLs per day. However, the actual volume of milk secreted may be adjusted to the requirements of the infant by feedback inhibition of lactation, a local factor secreted into the milk. Therefore, the rate of milk synthesis is related to the degree of breast emptiness or fullness. In other words, if the breasts are very full, then negative feedback goes to decrease milk production. The emptier the breast produces milk faster than the fuller one. Milk production is responsive to maternal states of well-being. So, stress and fatigue adversely affect a woman's milk supply. The mechanisms for this effect is the down-regulation of milk synthesis with increased levels of dopamine, norepi, or both, which inhibit prolactin synthesis. So relaxation is key for successful lactation. All right, well, let's briefly touch the main benefits of breastfeeding for the child. Human milk contains all of the different antibodies, which is M, A, D, G, and E, but secretory immunoglobulin A is the most abundant. Milk-derived immunoglobulin A is a significant source of passively acquired immunity for the infant during the weeks before the endogenous production of IgA occurs. So during this time of reduced neonatal gut immune function, the infant has limited defenses against ingested pathogens. Therefore, immunoglobulin A is an important protective factor against infection. Now, in addition to antibodies, human milk has numerous factors that can affect the intestinal microflora of the child. These factors enhance the colonization of some bacteria while inhibiting the colonization by others. The immunogenic components include lactoferrin, which binds to iron, thus making it unavailable to pathogenic bacteria. Also, lysozyme, which enhances IgA bactericidal activity against gram-negative organisms. In addition, breast milk has milk lipids, which damage membranes of enveloped viruses and mucins, which are present on the milk fat globule membrane. Mucins adhere to bacteria and viruses, and they help eliminate them from the body. Interferon and fibronectin have antiviral activities and enhance lytic properties of milk leukocytes. Lastly, human milk also contains growth modulators like epidermal growth factor, nerve growth factor, insulin-like growth factors, and interleukins, transforming growth factor alpha, transforming growth factor beta, and granulocyte colony stimulating factor are also identified in human milk. All of these are known potential advantages and benefits of breastfeeding toward the child. Okay, next, let's cover postpartum lactational mastitis. Thank you. 
postpartum mastitis is a localized cellulitis caused by bacterial invasion through an irritated or fissured or cracked nipple. It typically occurs after the second postpartum week and may be precipitated by milk stasis. There is usually a history of a cracked nipple or a skin abrasion. Staph aureus is the most common organism responsible, but staph epidermitis and streptococci are occasionally isolated as well. Drainage of milk from the affected segment should be encouraged and is best achieved by continued breastfeeding or the use of a breast pump. Empiric therapeutic options for mastitis in addition to continued breastfeeding or breast emptying include dicloxacillin, amoxicillin clavulonate, and cephalexin. Now, in patients with lactational mastitis who have a beta-lactam allergy, clarithromycin can be used. If suspected community-acquired methicillin-resistant staph aureus is a concern, then clindamycin or Bactrim can be employed. Okay, now in general, mastitis is treated with antibiotic therapy for 10 to 14 days, along with cold or warm compresses, and once again, continued breast emptying via breastfeeding or breast pumping every two hours or when engorged. Antibiotic therapy with continued breast emptying has been shown to be superior to breast emptying alone for resolution of symptoms and prevention of recurrence and abscess formation. For breast abscesses, historically, incision and drainage were considered the standard of care for these conditions. Although this method yielded a lower reoccurrence rate, it is more invasive than needle aspiration and frequently results in scarring with structural damage and poor cosmetic outcome. Fine needle aspiration should be considered the first-line therapy for abscesses smaller than 5 centimeters owing to its lower risks, followed by incision and drainage if recurrence occurs. Now, although Success has been reported with oral anti-staphylococcal antibiotics and serial aspiration. Surgical excision may be required for infected or obstructed ducts and provides a lower rate of recurrence for non-proberal abscesses and mastitis. Now, for persistent lesions, treatment options may include ultrasound-guided needle aspiration, percutaneous drainage catheter, and or surgical drainage. Although controversial, most agree that breastfeeding can usually continue in the presence of a treated abscess. Well, that wraps up our quick review on breastfeeding and lactation. We'll see you next time.